news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to remind you about the Deep Dive Workshop Series we've got coming up from the 31st of January until the 4th of April, in which we will have 10 amazing speakers who will be presenting about various aspects of craft, as well as the business side of publishing. Now, after each presentation, we'll host an hour workshop in which you'll have discussions and do writing exercises so that you can learn to apply what you've learned. You'll be sorted into a new group each week, so you'll get a lot of different feedback on your work, while also making new writing friends who can potentially become beta readers or writing group friends. If you're in a different time zone, don't worry. The recording of each session will go out the next day, and you'll be able to connect with other writers in your time zone so that you can set up your own breakaway sessions at times that suit you using the workshop prompts we'll send on. Now, if you want to kick off 2023 with a new commitment to your writing, this is the perfect way to do it. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com and go to the deep dive page to sign up. 
Hi everyone, welcome to the first Books with Hooks of 2023. It's that time of year again when you make all these epic New Year's resolutions or New Year's revolutions as my husband and I call them. So uh, yeah, let's hope that writing's going to be one of them. Carly? I know, and I am so excited that we're kicking off the year with our Deep Dive series. Our first one, you guys still have a few weeks to sign up, so our first one is going to be on Tuesday, the 31st of January, so I still have a few weeks, and we have a really exciting one to kick it off. Tara Singh Carlson, who's an executive editor at Patnam, she's acquired some really, really exciting books that you all have heard of, like Where the Crawdads Sing, The Light We Lost, and The Silent Wife. She's our first speaker, so we're so excited for you to join us in our Deep Dive series. You're going to be spending one day a week with us from January until April, and you still can find all the information to sign up on our website, theshitaboutwriting.com. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And just more on Tara's segment that she's going to be doing is she's going to be looking at the top five books that she fell in love with, and she's going to be breaking down all the reasons why she fell in love with them. So this is an amazing insight into an editor's mind to what they're thinking when a book goes out into submission and what appeals to them when the time comes to acquire a book. I think she's also the first editor to ever have two Reese Witherspoon picks, which is kind of incredible. So we are so excited. And she's such a lovely person. So come join us. Yeah, she's absolutely amazing. And those insights are going to be incredibly, incredibly valuable. And don't forget that after each session, we will be doing a one hour workshop in which we'll be guiding you through exercises and discussions to apply what you've just learned. And it's a great way to meet other writers and expand your writing community. Alrighty, Carly, will you kick us off with today's query letter? Hi, Carly. My name is Stephen Damone, and I'm excited to share the submission for my 106,000-word sci-fi novel, Creature Form, the story that answers the question, how dangerous is false hope? I should tell you first what I know about false hope. I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, which, if you don't know, is a doomsday cult. From the moment I can remember, I never believed a word that I was taught. Despite my parents' vow to be no part of the world, they allowed us to watch movies, listen to music, and play video games that would have definitely been considered too worldly by the congregation elders. I think my parents knew deep down it was all a lie, but since they were born into it too, they had no other choice but to keep doing it. They hoped for the end of the world, for paradise after. It never came. They sacrificed promotions at their jobs, gave away hours of their lives, traumatized my two brothers and I by not allowing us to participate in events with our friends like organized sports, birthdays, Halloween, and Christmas. This isn't what my novel is about, so why am I telling you this? It's so you know why Creature Form is authentic. I escaped my cult, and ultimately Creature Form is a story about escaping a cult mentality on a global scale. There is a happy ending to the story, but it's not a victory, which is how I would describe the experience of anyone who escapes a cult. On the surface, Creature Form is a science fiction saga about an ancient civilization of humans with the power to turn into animals, set at a time when technology is overtaking everything natural and threatening a cataclysmic clash. It's Animorphs for Adults meets a futuristic Lord of the Rings, where the ring power is in everyone's minds and cannot be destroyed. No ordinary effort stops the wheel. The first master of fire, Blaze, recites this mantra to himself as he awakens from a thousand-year slumber that was supposed to end in his death. Instead, he finds himself on the brink of starvation inside of a dark cave within an underground volcano where he took the form of a mushroom so he could fall into a painless internal sleep. He speaks of failing to rid the world of evil as a strange haze that is also in his dreams taunts him from the darkness. He has been brought back to witness the unfathomable destruction of the planet. But as he finds his way through the dark, he sees a glimmer of hope, a child made of light, 
appears suddenly lost in his own dreams somewhere on this planet with the power to save all of humanity. As the child fades away, Blaze realizes that if he has any chance of dying in peace, he must do whatever he can to fight the forces holding humanity captive. His surge of hope is short-lived, as Blaze is immediately captured outside the cave by men wearing contraptions on their bodies and appearing out of the sky in giant machines. He is to be interrogated, tortured, and shown that the world is ruled by a man named Melichar, who has promised the end of pain and death in exchange for loyalties to a civilized society where creature form is forbidden. All the while, the child that appeared to Blaze sleeps in a derelict shed falling in and out of a dream. When he wakes up for good, he looks at the night sky and tries to place all of the things he doesn't want to remember in the space between the stars. But he can't forget his mother's murder, no matter how much he tries. Completely alone, he lies in wait for his younger sister to return from another night of eating townspeople in the misshapen creature form of a nightmare. He doesn't know what is happening to her. And with their father having disappeared after them, leaving in this strange place when their mother died, the boy, Alistair, calls upon the light inside that can help his sister and anyone else lost like him. Creature Form is a story of how humans were born to change, to create, to be anything we want to be, but also a story of how we lost that ability. Thank you for reading my submission. In the words of your podcast co-host, Bianca, it just takes one yes, and I hope this query is my first step in that direction. I have included a short sample, but would love to send you the full manuscript, including some artwork I've done for the novel. In addition to being a writer, I'm an artist, musician, and have a day job as a creative director at a high-tech company in Ottawa, where I studied marketing at the University of Ottawa and earned my bachelor's degree in commerce marketing in 2009. I have a wife and two children, seven and nine. I hope to hear from you soon. Stephen Damon. Thank you, Carly. Okay, in terms of word count, I'm guessing this is probably going to be our longest query letter. What is that word count? All right, I'll give uh, all the listeners a chance to like over under on us. Like, what do you guys think it is now that you've had a chance to think? Okay, I'm going to tell you now it is 871 words. So this is double kind of a lot of other queries, which again, I think you guys can probably tell. From listening. So I have a feeling that they added a bit of context for the podcast. I just have a feeling about that. But again, it's it's quite on the long side here. Okay, so I think I'm just going to start with the big picture stuff, actually. Sometimes I just start at the top. But I think what's happening here is, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast, but when we have a creature or a character or anybody who, our main character, whose goal is to die, it's very tricky to create a sense of urgency and a sense of story forward when really what the story forward momentum is getting towards is this character's goal of death. So it's challenging. It's challenging on a number of levels because we, we're not sure where to place our sympathy. We're not sure, we don't want to get invested in a character that's going to die either, right? Because that's emotionally draining on the reader. So that's the part that I'm kind of struggling with as a big picture concept is how soon is this character craving death? Because later on in the pitch, they're talking about kind of like avenging the mother's murder and some other stuff like this and like a sister character, right? So like, it does seem like there's something to live for. I don't think this book is specifically trying to be on the nose about death by suicide per se. It is quite largely metaphorical, but that's just some of the stuff that's dancing around in my head here. So the next point I have is really about some examples in terms of like, how could we craft this pitch in a way that is more effective? So there are a number of books about sleep, a number of kind of not necessarily sci-fi, some of them more upmarket, but some examples I wanted to point us to to kind of think about some ways that we could structure a pitch. The Dreamers by Karen Thompson Walker. That would be a good example just to like check it out. How is that pitched? How is the sleeping part framed as part of the hook 
of itself. We also have Big Door Prize by Emma Walsh, The Dog Stars by Peter Heller, How High We Go in the Dark, The Anatomy of Dreams. So here's some, those are some examples for you to check out about how these kind of high concept hooks can work in a way that is still story forward in a way that we are kind of, we know what we're working towards. We know there's some larger things. We know there's some metaphors because it's pretty dark and experimental and has a lot of metaphor. And I agree it is, it is science fiction, but we also have to cut out a bunch of the stuff that's kind of more memoir-ish. And even though it does frame our understanding of the book, you're still pitching me this book. You're not writing a memoir. You know what I mean? So I think we have to think about your story and what's the best vehicle to tell it. And if you think that it's fiction, then we have to cut out a lot of this autobiographical stuff. We can put some of it in the author bio, but uh, but I think we need we need a pretty big restructuring really to focus on what are the goals and the stakes. And if it is death by suicide, how are we going to kind of create that in a story forward way that also gets at some of the metaphorical elements that you're that you're getting at? Because I think a lot of the motivation is buried really deep down here, right? Like the mother's murder, stuff like that. So that's kind of my my big picture take on this one. I think I think we need a, a restructure and we need to kind of create a new vision for this. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was in those opening pages and what's your take on them? All right. So we start with our character, Blaze. We meet him when he is waking up. He is waking up in the form of a mushroom. And then he is transforming into a person. We kind of, we understand that, you know, he's getting organs and things like that. So that's kind of it. It's a very kind of slow, literary kind of unwinding of, of meeting, of meeting this character. Okay. So let me start at the top here. I really like the first line. No ordinary effort stops the wheel. And that was also mentioned the query. I think this is a really, this is a really good line, but We are really starting with, as was mentioned in the query, it's a downer, right? Like rooting for a character that wants to die is tricky, right? Like we don't know him yet. We don't know where to put the loyalties. So I made a number of instances where I think we should cut. There's a bunch of kind of like ellipses and things like that, just because it's confusing, you know, there's so much world to establish. So I would really focus on establishing the world more clearly and how he feels about waking up. Like he's clearly angry that he woke up, right? because he didn't want to wake up. So I just think there's a lot of feelings that haven't been unpacked and we're still doing it on a bit of a surface level way. This is a very complex, complex story. and There's a lot of world building here. So best of luck to you, Stephen. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's go to your first query letter. I just want to let everyone know that it's 2023 and I am so excited about the new year and so is Baba. So if you hear barking or crying or snoring, it's because I have him with me today. Sorry, Cece, I do just want to interrupt and tell our listeners about the time that I had you come and speak to my creative writing (laughs) class at U of T one night. And we were listening to Cece, who had amazing insights on the world. And I kept hearing this weird noise and I was like, is, has Cece had like beans for dinner? Because oh it sounds like Cece is farting <laughs> through this entire conversation. And then we realized at the end that it was Bubba's grunting in the background. So, um, yeah. I think I would Carry have on, to be Cece. dying, right? Like I would have to be dying for anything to... <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember the first time you told me the story. It was, it was hilarious. Okay, here we go. Dear Agent... At 34, environmental crusader Karina Valdez is the youngest member on the county board in Monterey and the only woman among good old boys who resent her rise to power. Soon after winning election, a pest infestation threatens to obliterate the California coastal region scrubs. 
Ravenous zebra-striped moths are fluttering everywhere and nothing is safe, from humble celery to celebrated Chardonnay grapes. Karina can support farmers and their plan to use a hazardous pesticide, or stand with the gutsy Mexican farm workers and their anti-pesticide campaign. She has strong convictions, but tends to see issues in black and white, so she struggles to make the transition from fierce activist to strategic politico. Karina's Tia Irma has been her most dedicated campaign volunteer and mobilized the señoras from the church to attend protest rallies with their Si Se Puede signs. But when Tia Irma grows frustrated with Karina's legal tactics that fail to stop the pesticide, she joins an eco-terrorist cell to sabotage the plane spaying the toxic brew. Her impulsive antics could topple her niece's political career. Karina must juggle shielding her vulnerable reputation and her duty to her aunt before she loses credibility and power and before the pesticide poisons her community. Not in Our Backyard is women's fiction with a word count of 85,000 words. The novel is similar to stories that celebrate a rich sense of place and delve into social and environmental issues like Julia Alvarez's Afterlife and Waiting for the Night Song by Julie Carrick Dalton. I'm participating in a mentorship program with Latinx in Publishing and was a mentee in the Writer to Writer program of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. I have a journalism degree, interned with the Associated Press, and spent five years in the magazine industry. My background as the daughter of Latin American immigrants and years in philanthropy working with the immigrant community have informed this novel. Thank you for your consideration. Claudia Armand. Thank you, Cece. And I'm so glad that they included Julie's book as a comp because that's what I was thinking of the whole time. And I was thinking how great it is that we're seeing so much new environmental fiction. Okay, Cece. So this is around 320 words, which is great in terms of length. Here are my thoughts. First, I think I would bring the last plot paragraph that starts with the title, Not in Our Backyard, all the way up to the top right? Like, let's start with the metadata. That way, when I read about the story, I know what kind of book I'm reading. So I know it's not a rom-com, for example. I know it's not, I don't know, sci-fi, right? And so I will read the plot with the tone that you are intending. That's why it's so important to start with that kind of information. And by the way, this is totally a choice. There are agents who prefer that you start with the plot paragraph. This is just something that I recommend. It's actually something that I learned from the podcast. I do think it works really well. There's a line in what is currently the second plot paragraph that reads, she has strong convictions but tends to see issues in black and white. So instead of making the sentence about her characterization, her struggles, her tendencies, her convictions, you can connect it to the plot, especially given that the previous line already showed us the two options that she has. So I would try to make it more about plot and less about character. I loved the development about Tia Arma joining the eco-terrorist cell. I read that and I was like, oh, that's cool. And it made me think, okay, so this must be dual timeline. And if it is dual timeline, I would really appreciate knowing that in the metadata paragraph, wherever you choose to place it. So that's another note for you. And then I also want to say, finally, to wrap this up, I really liked the title. I thought that was really interesting. Thank you for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So it's election night and we meet our protagonist, Karina, who's 
Obviously, it's election night for county supervisor, a position that we know through interiority that her dad held for 15 years. She's holding two speeches in her hands, a victory speech and a concession speech. And Brooke is telling her, you won't need the concession one. She's not so confident. She's thinking about things like articles that said that she was too young to govern. She's 34. She doesn't feel like she's young. The fact that a lot of people think she's only getting the chance to run because her father held the position for 15 years. And so Brooke is walking her around the room making sure that she's greeting all the wealthy donors. And she's thinking to herself, I'm grateful that they gave me this opportunity because I'm an environmental lawyer. I was never involved in politics until now. And she really wants to win this. She thinks about how meaningful it is to her. And her aunt brings her tamales. They're at a restaurant, by the way. And her aunt is like, you need actual food. And it's the best. I loved that quirky scene. And at the end, she speaks with Juan, who's really well-connected, knew her dad. And, you know, he's like, wow, this is a fancy restaurant, right? Like, your dad wouldn't have had these at a fancy restaurant. So she feels a little bit of imposter syndrome. And he tells her that migrant farmers have been sleeping in fields because they're not provided housing. He tells her about moths that, unless people use pesticides, are going to destroy all the crops. He tells her about more things that are going on, and she is really shocked to hear it. She asks him, are you exaggerating? And and he says, no. And then he says, well, in fact, there's something that we ought to discuss. And that's where the pages are. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those opening pages? So very strong, very polished. I did want more interiority and emotionality. I want to be specific about this. Yes, there is interiority. And yes, there is emotionality. I highlighted the moments and I said, this is good, but can we go deeper? And I included examples of like what deeper could look like just to illustrate my point, just so you have an idea of what I'm trying to get to. Because right now, I don't see any curiosity seeds. Maybe the stuff about Juan telling her about the threats, but I don't think those are curiosity seeds. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But yeah, I wanted more curiosity seeds and I wanted the emotionality and the interiority to do that a little bit more, to, to plant clues. I do think that one thing that's working really well is that there's a huge disconnect between her interiority and her actions, meaning her fact that she's not confident at all. And yet she's trying to show strength. And I think there's also room for some sharp specifics. Again, I highlighted the moment where I was like, I would love sharp specifics. And there's another moment where there's there are sharp specifics. And I was like, great, this is exactly what I'm talking about. So when it comes to Juan telling her about the challenges, this is where I actually struggled. He tells her three things in succession that are happening with the place that she's supposed to govern. And I don't believe that she would know about it. What info did she have on the situation prior to hearing the specifics from him? Is this contradicting the information she had? Was this a problem she thought had already been solved? Right now, she seems completely shocked by the fact that migrant farmers are sleeping in fields because there's no housing. She literally just says, what? And I don't know. I think, like, had she simply never bothered to, to find out? I assume she has some sense of the major issues, and it's important that she does so she can seem intelligent. So I would like this. It's okay that this doesn't match her intel, but then we need more specificity on why it's not matching her intel. And her interiority should be wondering, why is this the first I'm hearing of it? Why has Brooke been telling me about all these other things, but not this? So I did want you to go a little deeper when it comes to that plot point. And thank you for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right, Carly, let's go to your second query letter. Hi, Carly. I hope you're well. I'm a big fan of the podcast and want to say thank you for offering this amazing resource to aspiring authors like myself. 
I'm pleased to submit for your consideration Sins of Our Fathers, a 113,000-word literary fiction novel. This is a contemporary coming-of-age story dealing with the passing up intergenerational trauma and the repercussions of challenging familial expectations. Similar titles include Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, We Were Liars by E. Lockhart. Here's a bit about the novel. In the summer of 1997, no one in the small town of Westbury, Massachusetts, knows who Olivia Simpson is, but everyone knows Henry Winslow. The Winslow family have been pillars of the community for centuries, but a generation-long secret harbored by the family patriarch threatens to unravel their close bond in esteemed standing. Olivia, arriving to Westbury just months after the loss of her best friend, is looking to disappear, but it's not long until she finds herself drawn to the glow of the gorgeous and mysterious Winslow children. Henry and Olivia don't know it, but their lives will stay connected far past the bounds of that summer. From high school to college and finally their late 20s, this intergenerational saga follows two lives bonded by love but shaped by their families, for better or worse. Switching between Olivia and Henry's perspective over four acts, we see the protagonist reckoning with the expectations of their respective families, their feelings about the future, and the difference between who they were as teens and who they've ultimately become as adults. Crackling with angst and the desperation to be understood, this novel asks the reader a terrifying question. Who are we destined to become, if not just like our parents? And a bit about me. I'm an American currently living in Sydney, Australia, and this would be my publishing debut. I work in brand marketing for a tech company and have a degree in marketing and business administration from Villanova University. In the past few months, I've started a TikTok account to promote my novel and document my writing and querying process. I hope to carve out a niche viewership and capitalize on the 88 billion views and counting that hashtag book talk receives. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Can I send you the manuscript for you to have a full read through? Best, Victoria. Wonderful, Carly. Okay, what was the word count and what was your take on that? All right, so this one's coming in at 4.05. Okay, so I'm going to start at the top today. Long. This is long. 113,000 words, right? We have a lot to cover. It is many, many different kind of sections of this novel. We're told that there are kind of like four sections. So that's that's a lot to cover. So it's a bit on the long side. Maybe I'm going to jump to the big picture now. I think what I'm struggling with about this query and queries like this query is that this seems incredibly interesting, but it's told in such a surface level way that I actually don't know anything about this book. It's just really incredibly vague, right? So there's things like generation long secret harbored by the family patriarch threatens to unravel their close bond and esteemed standing. I haven't felt any investment in terms of these characters yet because I don't know what their struggles are and what the stakes are. And so when things are so vague and so general, even though it's potentially very interesting, I have absolutely no emotional investment in this when I really want to. That's the issue, right? Like the protagonists are reckoning with the expectations of their respective families and feelings about the future. Like all of this very, again, universal language is just not doing any heavy lifting here. And I think it's probably at the expense of the person, the writer, probably not wanting to like spill all the beans and give away all the secrets. But in the opposite, what's happening is that I have no idea what's going on. So I think it's really important here that we really dig into what is specifically happening to these characters. Because we really need to care on an individual level. This is the type of query that I really want to request pages on. But ultimately, I have no idea what's actually happening in the book, which makes me hesitant to be like, okay, is there anything happening in this book, right? Or is this just going to be scenes that are exploring these different families? So that's what makes me hesitant about a pitch like this, even though, again, this is the type of thing that I typically would like, right? Like, 
these comps, Fates and Furies, Little Fires Everywhere, even though they are, the comps are a bit kind of like late 2010s, they're very different. They were very popular at the time. But then We Were Liars is YA. So it, the comps are a little bit all over the place as well, which I was hoping they would point me in a more clear direction. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was in those opening pages? All right, so our opening pages, we... Uh, I think it's uh, mentioned in the pitch that it's coming of age. So this is, we're in a child's point of view between two cousins at a young age. They are on their summer break and they are talking about some games that they want to play. They want to go to the harbor and kind of race some dinghies and, and do some things like this. So they're just kind of dialoguing in a kid's POV. And then we have a dad that says, you can't do that. You have to go to the high school later to support kind of the older cousins and there's dialogue going back and forth about that. We have the child that says, I hate being in this family, which brings the grandfather named Cookie, Cookie Winslow, in and kind of sits them down and gives them a talking to about family and what it means to be part of a family and the importance of respecting that and the, the high standard that he holds them to. Right. Thank you, Carly. Okay. What was your take on them? All right. So this is interesting. In terms of the amount of dialogue that's happening here, a couple of things. I generally like openings with dialogue, but I think there's some things that are happening here. That One of them is kind of one of my pet peeves, which I have mentioned before, is in dialogue when we name the character we're speaking to too many times. It's like, it says like, are you kidding me, dad? And then dad, that's so unfair. Like, that's the kind of thing where I'm like, oh, we know we're talking to the dad. Don't say dad in the dialogue. So that's one of my one of my pet peeves there. Also, I found the child's dialogue to be quite formal, which then made me think like, what time in history is this? And it's supposed to be the 90s, I thought. So this felt very like, I'm not sure where we are in time and place. I'm not sure how stilted this dialogue is supposed to be. So that made me think that actually we could have done a lot more in prose here that maybe it should be prose you know exposition instead of dialogue so so I struggled a little bit with whether that worked because I also think because this is third person it's incredibly distant and when we're in when dialogue also creates distance because again we don't have the opportunity to create a lot of interiority unless we're commenting in interiority like how they feel about the dialogue but in third person it's very hard unless it was close so there's just a lot of challenges here in terms of how this is set up and really getting reader investment and that was the biggest thing that I that I felt in terms of challenges also the spelling was not in U.S. spelling um, like realized was with an S instead of a Z so stuff like that just make sure this is an American setting it's in Massachusetts you're pitching this in North America so I would default to to U.S. here so yeah so I would just have a look at is the dialogue working and could we get a little bit closer in terms of third person to, to get some reader investment? Thank you, Carly. I understand where writers are coming from here because they write their opening pages and they get told we need more showing, less telling in the opening pages. And they know that dialogue is a part of showing. And so perhaps things that were written in exposition now become dialogue to show something in scene. But if the dialogue doesn't work that way, then it is better to use exposition there. So it is a struggle to just kind of find the balance and the best way to convey that information. Okay, Cece, will you read us your last query letter? Dear Ms. Lyra, I talked my way into a job at Rolling Stone magazine in 1976. Three years later, as an organizer of five nights of No Nukes concert at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, and many more, I got snared into the rock politics scrambles and my brother saved me. Many years later, though, I could not save him. The 67,000-word memoir, Brilliant Disguise, 
is my journey to discover what I missed in my brother's 39 years as Big K, adored by all, and why I, Little K, survived. I grew up in Robert's shadow after our dad's much-publicized conviction for embezzlement and eventual disbarment. Our nuclear family exploded into a vaporous mushroom cloud, and we could only, as Bert the Turtle jingled in civil defense cartoons, duck and cover. The young me basked in my brother's glow. Teacher singled me out because certainly the little sister would excel too. But how could I ever reach their expectations? Instead, I rebelled, chose the wrong men, drank, and took drugs. Only in retrospect can I piece together how Robert's too brief life was a brilliant disguise. Traumatized by our childhood experience, he buried his pain behind an outsized personality. On his 12th wedding anniversary in 1990, he ended his life. This book winds together my rock and roll odyssey with an exploration of Robert's life, teasing out clues as to why the past so dangerously swamped him. The major literary antecedents of my memoir can be found in Patti Smith's Just Kids, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, and Jill Bialowski's History of a Suicide, My Sister's Unfinished Life. Similar to Patti Smith's innocent and enthusiastic salute to New York City during the late 60s and 70s, my narrative follows the same streets and avenues, only a few years later with a similar heightened awareness of a world where rock and roll, sexual politics, and massive personalities would collide and explode. Sylvia Plath's Romana Clough mixes humor with the events that mark Esther Greenwood's gradual break with reality, as my memoir also colors moments of levity throughout the darker turns. Just as I delve into the past to understand why my brother took his life, Jill Bialowski launches a similar journey to understand her sister's turmoil underscoring the sibling bond. Susan Kelman eventually left the rock and roll world for straight journalism. She received a 1985 Folio Award for a three-part series in the New York Times battling for a prize radio station license. An excerpt from this memoir appeared in the Missouri Review in 2018. Her work has also appeared in Plowshares blog, The Washington Post, Washingtonian Magazine, Congressional Quarterly, The Baltimore Sun, and numerous other places. She finished her full-time career as a communications expert on domestic policy at the Brookings Institution. The Obama administration tapped her to edit the economic report of the president for the four years of his second term. The Biden administration did the same for his first term. Susan was a contributing writer of the book, How Ten Global Cities Take on Homelessness. Susan lives on a saltwater farm in Maine with two rambunctious ducks. I have attached the first five pages below. Please let me know if you're interested in seeing more. Best, Susan Kelman. Thanks, Cece. Okay, what was the word count on that and what was your take on it? This is around 550 words. I do feel it's a little on the long side and there's a lot of room to cut. My biggest concern is that it seems like this memoir was written for therapy, which would make it for you and not for the reader. So I recommend framing it in a different way. I'm speaking, for example, of the sentence that starts with, this 67,000-word memoir is my journey to discover what I missed in my brother's years, etc., etc. So unless your brother is incredibly famous, 
it does read like it's therapy, which is very valuable and a really important personal tool, but not necessarily curiosity inducing. As well, when it comes to the comps, I am someone who, when it comes to nonfiction, I'm interested in basically every category except for sports and music. And that's because I don't know anything about sports and I know very little about music. Even I know who Patti Smith is. So my point is, unless you're as famous as Patti Smith, I don't think that's a fair comp because this just doesn't apply. Same with Sylvia Plath, like Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. That's a classic. I just don't think it's a realistic comp. So I would rethink the comps. They also shouldn't require this much explanation. So I highlighted the portion that you could cut if you were to keep these comps, which I personally don't recommend, but obviously it's up to you. So yeah, that's the query letter. Thank you. Perhaps the author would like to call into our comps query and give an overview of this to see what Emily, our bookseller at East City Bookshop, can come up with. So far, people have been blown away by how on point her comps suggestions have been. Okay, Cece, what is in those opening pages? Two people you don't want to mess with, librarians and booksellers. So this begins with the protagonist. She is a child. She's really, really young. Her brother is six and she's younger. And their nuclear family exploded. Her dad is leaving. Their mom took them to live with Grandma Rose in the Baltimore suburbs. She was handed a weather girl kit to distract her from the yelling. The yelling is between her mom and her dad. Her mom is saying, your mistake cost us everything. He's saying, I don't want to leave the kids. She's saying, you should have thought about this before. The protagonist tells tells us that she would not see her father again for nearly a year, both her and her brother. We get information on the accusations against the dad. We learn that there was a conversation between the mom and her sisters where the sisters told her, well, your husband's a monster, you should divorce him. She escaped this by going into imaginary worlds. Her brother, who was older, could read, but she couldn't. There's a scene in which her brother is digging a hole in the lawn and she's talking to the TV repairman, asking him if he has a little girl and does he live with her? And then there's a small uh, scene where she is telling her friend that Jack Kennedy is Jewish because she's figured out that everyone who's rich and powerful is Jewish. And her classmates say, no, he's not. He's Catholic. He's the first Catholic president. And she's thinking to herself, darn it, now when I thought I figured out the world, the world does not make sense after all. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on the opening pages? So, here is the deal. I would recommend cutting the first four pages. Essentially cutting, like keep very little of it. Because you are giving us a bird's eye view. This is not a very young protagonist talking. This is you looking back and giving us big picture notes. So, for example, we would not see our father again for nearly a year. Why are you telling us that? That's stripping the tension. The protagonist doesn't know that. We stopped asking about dad. We haven't seen you ask about dad. You're just, you're, you're summarizing, right? Like you're speeding through and summarizing. There's like a huge paragraph on the charges against the dad. We don't need that paragraph. When we have information, not through scene, just through telling that the mom's sisters called the dad a monster and that she should consider divorce. Does the character even know what divorce is? This was a long time ago, right? Does she even understand what that word means? When she hears the word monster, is she thinking like a literal cartoon monster? Is she thinking something else? However, the parts where you are showing us her life is really interesting. I know it's your life, by the way, because you are the protagonist, but you, I have got to think of the author as a 
character and not as the person that I'm talking to. So that part's really interesting. The scene about Jack Kennedy, the scene about the TV repair guy, that was also really interesting too. So I wish we could have more of this. I I wanted to be immersed in your evolving consciousness as a child. I wanted to see you playing with your cousins, see you playing with your friends. It's really excellent. The dialogue is, is super great. Now, maybe this is not your vision, but I think that you should start the book like this. Don't worry about giving us big picture context. You're not writing an article. You're not writing an essay, write tightly on a scene level because that's what's interesting and that's what's going to hook the reader, in my opinion. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Colleen, Cece, thank you so much for kicking off this year's first Books with Hooks. We are wishing all of our listeners an extremely productive and creative year ahead. And as always, we're honored to be a part of that journey. Okay, let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. and We have bilingual friends and francophone friends, so it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously, and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference, and that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is a writer and public school teacher. Through her speaking and blogging, she passionately brings awareness to the challenges of traumatic brain injury and caregiving. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and two children. It's my pleasure to welcome Abby Maslin. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bianca. It's such a joy to have you. You and I met at my event at Washington, D.C. at East City Bookshop. I always love giving them a plug because they're one of my favorite indies. And you were there and we got chatting and we spoke about your memoir and you sent it to me and I absolutely loved it. And I know we have so many podcast listeners who are writing memoir. And here's the really tough thing about writing memoir is that this thing happens in your life whether it's good or it's bad, it's transformative. It's something huge and it's something that people want to write about. And so they write about it in a way that either feels like journal entries or a summary of this thing that happened or they give away too much in the beginning. The big thing is that most people who write memoir struggle with how to structure it and how to convey that information. And yours was just done exquisitely. So for our memoir writers out there, get Love You Hard by Abby Maslin and study it. Study it as like a memoir Bible, right? So now I'm using this opportunity to pick Abby's brain. So Abby, will you first just tell our listeners a bit about what the memoir is about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. So this story really starts about 10 years ago. I had just turned 30 years old and my husband, who I'd been married to for about three years at that point, went to a baseball game with friends one night and did not come home. And what transpired was an event that would change the trajectory of both our lives. He had been brutally assaulted on his way home. He had been left for dead on the streets and he sustained a major traumatic brain injury, which put him into a coma and, and then led him toward a very long rehabilitation. And so this is a journey a lot of people have lived, maybe more than you'd expect, but as I was living it, I think what struck me was that even though my husband, TC, was the one with the brain injury, I became so utterly transformed by what happened to us. So whereas he had changed entirely, I also had to change to meet the circumstances of being married to a stranger. And so within that, I began doing a lot of blogging, a lot of journaling, like you mentioned. I think that's how a lot of memoirists get started, just putting their feelings on paper. But I think the intention of writing and publishing a memoir is a very different intention than sitting down to blog about it or journal about it. So my intention at the beginning was just to make people understand what was going on. Very few people in my life knew that term traumatic brain injury. They did not know that we were embarking on a recovery. There was no clear trajectory for. And so I just wanted to make them understand. But after about a year, all those blog entries had become more widely read than I ever anticipated. And people began asking me if I had plans to write a book. 
So that really started shifting my thinking about what would be the purpose of writing a book? Why would I want to share this story? And I think in that conversation with myself, I realized that there were some really universal themes here. Our story is specific to us, but the ways that we had to change when the script for life got switched on us, lots of people can relate to being in that situation. And so I think there were some really universal messages that I felt were important to share because I didn't want people to feel alone. And because I think this is what connects us as humans are these universal threads of struggle. Yeah, very much so. And there was just so much there in terms of overcoming adversity, but also I think it took on almost like this chronic, I feel like there's been a culture lately of chronic optimism and chronic gratitude. And it's almost to the point that when shit happens in your life, you can't fall apart and you can't say this is absolutely shit. You have to go, well, this is still great and this is still great. And this was an honest portrayal of somebody who is just, well, you as the wife of somebody that this happened to, treading water, doing your best, falling apart. And there was the messiness in there, which I absolutely loved, as opposed to this chronic optimism. Well, it's bad, but little Miss Sunshine, this, this, and this. And I think that's something as well that people can relate to so much because we should be allowed to get messy and we should be allowed to have all of these feelings when shit like this happens. And you didn't shy away from these things. There were moments that I was like, oh, is Abby going to go there? And you went there. And that was absolutely amazing. I had goosebumps so, so often. And I love that you spoke about the intention of why you would want to put that out there. Just because something like this happens to a person doesn't mean that it's going to make a good memoir because you always need to be thinking about why would other people want to pick this up? Why would they want to read it. Maybe some of them have experienced something similar. Maybe they haven't. But like you say, there are elements there that can be taken away and learned regardless of what adversity you've overcome. Yeah. You know, I think to your first point, one of my intentions in writing this as a memoir was to remove the shame of the experience. And I think that's why memoir is such a powerful genre uh, to begin with, because I knew what the world wanted me to do, and that was to stay quiet, to take it on the chin and become the kind of caregiver that forgets about my own wants and my own needs. That is the message that's been reinforced, especially for women throughout history. But I hated that idea, and it felt completely unfair, and it, all felt, it also felt dishonest. And so I, I think I really wanted to remove the shame because I didn't want to live with shame. So I felt like if I told the story and I told it honestly in a way that I had never seen this story told before, because if you know anything about brain injury, you probably know it through movies like The Vow, uh, where a couple falls back in love and none of that messiness is really part of the equation. Well, that book's been written. I wanted to write the book that hadn't been written. And that was the real behind the scenes story of how this is an identity crisis for two people. And, and you don't come out of an identity crisis unscathed. You, you do a lot of crying and a lot of hurting and a lot of growing. So all of that needed to be part of the memoir in order for it to be successful and, and tell it the way that I thought it should be told. I really hope one thing I can convey to your listeners is that I began this journey as someone who maybe wanted to write a book like in this tiny little place in my heart that I would never reveal to anybody. But I don't know that I ever would have made this leap into becoming a published author if I hadn't 
really had to encounter life or death as we know it. And to see that you don't know how much time you get, right? And I saw that with my husband. He was so young when this happened to him. He had this incredible work trajectory for his for his own career that he was on. And for me, it was just this reminder of like, if you want to write a book in your life, no matter what that book is about, this is the moment. You get up today and you do it. You get up at 4 a.m. and you write this book and you do it. And you can be a public school teacher like me and have taken you know, one writing class in my whole life. And you can teach yourself how to do this work by studying other great books and other great memoirs and by committing yourself to the idea that you're going to make this happen. And so it can happen for anybody. And I really do want that to be something that people believe and and let motivate them because ultimately you have to sit down and you have to get the words down, right? Yeah, that that's incredibly, incredibly motivating because we do. We tend to think, oh, I've got all the time in the world and I'll do it another year and I'll wait until I'm retired or I'll wait until all the children leave the house, et cetera, et cetera. And if this is a burning thing you have to do, then sit down and damn, we'll do it. But what surprises me here Abby, is that you were like, oh, maybe this is something I would like to do. But you write incredibly well, incredibly, incredibly well. So I want us to go through the process of of writing this from start to finish. I mean, I want to understand how much polishing went into this, how much is just you're a damn good writer, and how much of this was revisions, etc. But I know it started with that blog post because there were so many people who constantly needed updates. And I saw this with a good friend of mine as well. They had babies, twins that were delivered really, really prematurely. They were in the NICU. NICU and they were struggling to update everybody who needed to be updated and so they also started a blog and it was a wonderful way to keep everybody updated because those who are interested will go and have a look and of course you then had a lot more people reading it than probably than people you knew and this might be because his story was in the press at the time. So once you decided you were going to write this was it a case of you had an agent or a publisher reach out and say I've been following your blog. This is amazing. I want you to write something. How did that come to be? Yeah. I mean, I had a wonderfully serendipitous kind of moment happen where I had been writing these blogs, which by the way, I look back at them. They are not beautiful writing, but they're honest. And so I think within that I had captured some things that I would need later in the, in the journey, but I had written also during this time, an essay that I had submitted to a contest. And the contest prize was a phone conversation with a literary agent. And that agent was actually somebody who represented Kelly Corrigan at that moment. And I then fell into Kelly Corrigan's writings and realized we had some similarities in the way that we storytell. So I ended up winning this contest and having a conversation with this agent. And mind you, I had this phone conversation in a hospital room. So in my mind, I'm like, you're a caregiver. This is who you are in this moment of life. And then in, in the other part of my mind, I'm like, you're living a dream moment. Like this is, this cannot be happening. This agent offered to represent me. And she said, do you have anything else I can read? I had 25 pages of what I thought could become this book. And they were so unpolished. They were single spaced. They were like, I mean, it barely had paragraphs. That's kind of what it looked like. I cringe thinking about it now. But the same kind of honesty and the same style of storytelling was evident in those pages. So she offers to represent me. And we began the process of putting together a book proposal, which she explained to me and she shared book proposals with me. And she said, I want you to write about a third of this book. 
And then we'll put the other two thirds in an outline form and then we'll pitch it. And we'll see what happens. So I started that work of trying to write a proposal and I got about a year into it and my marriage was falling apart. And I knew at this time, I mean, this was 2013, 2014, we weren't yet seeing a lot of published memoirs with really messy elements, you know, far fewer really honest endings. And I told my agent, I said, I do not think I can give this the happy ending that publishers are going to want. And she said, well, take your time, go work on your marriage and come back to me when you're ready. And so I did. And that made all the difference in the world. I went and I just lived my life for a few years. And then I found that I was sitting in a much more comfortable place in life. My husband's recovery had gone really miraculously well. I had a new baby and I said, this is the moment where it's got to happen. I reached back to my agent. I said, let's do this. Let's really do this. And that's when I had to learn how to become a polished writer. So I think the biggest issue I had with this book, the big mystery for me was the structure. I had initially envisioned it as going back and forth in timelines, and that really worked for about 100 pages of the book, and then it stopped working. It just didn't make sense as a structure. So I started just reading an incredible amount of memoirs. I read so many memoirs during this time, and I really read them like a student. I was trying to figure out what structure might work for me, and I ended up writing this proposal about six different times in about six different ways. I would say like I wrote the the Glennon Doyle version of it. I wrote the I wrote the Elizabeth Gilbert version of it. And ultimately I ended up choosing structurally something that's a little bit more similar to Wild where you're in the present for the whole time but there are you get background information as you go. And I, I think I heard this recently in an episode of your podcast just that skill of putting in that backstory it's really a tough skill. So then it went through more drafts and the version that ultimately got published was probably the seventh time that I, I tried writing the book because the structure was the hardest nut to crack. It really, really was. And so I always, you know, when I'm talking to memoir writers, I think that's the thing that a lot of people come to in their journey of writing a book is how am I going to structure this? Where does the story start? That's a really tough decision to make as well. But a lot of trial and error went into it. Yeah. And so for our listeners, what happens is we have a prologue, which is we 100% needed the prologue. So chapter one is the morning that Abby sort of wakes up and realizes that her husband has not come home and the police get called and everything happens. But with that kind of beginning, and it's the exact same as with fiction, if you dive into the action immediately, the reader is not invested in these characters. And we're going to talk about you and your husband as characters, Abby, because this is what happens in memoir. As the readers, we don't know you personally. So we're kind of reading this as if you were characters. And so we need to be invested in you both to get on board with whatever's happening. And it's the same as in fiction. If you just dive in to a character contacting the police and saying, my husband didn't come home, the reader's like, well, I don't know this character. I don't know their husband. I don't know that I'm all that invested. And the smart thing you did then was go back and you had just a few page prologue in terms of the night that you met. And it starts with, it says July 2005 prologue. It begins with a t-shirt and it talks about how you noticed the t-shirt first, followed the t-shirt, saw the man. And it talks about this love at first sight kind of thing, which is amazing. And you really put us in the moment with you both. And that immediately transports the reader back to the moment they met their significant other. And some people, it was super romantic. Some it wasn't, but it's something that they can relate to. And I love how you did it all 
in the present tense. Because here's the thing, when you write a memoir, you know how it's ended, right? You've gotten to this point and you kind of know how to end it. And too many memoirists tell too much early on, which removes any tension, any suspense, all the things that we talk about that need to be in fiction in terms of story forward curiosity, keeping readers turning pages, tension, all of that needs to be there. So how were you able to, when you sat down to tell the story, how were you able to tell it in a way that it was unfolding for the reader exactly as it unfolded for you without this constant future you interjecting the whole time? That was a challenge. That was a challenge just from the perspective of the lessons that I learned and all the wisdom that I had mined over years. I couldn't I couldn't put that into the present, right? I could only hint at it. And so there was a lot that I think I would have loved to have said more explicitly, but it would have taken the reader out of the story. I know for myself, you know, I'm a reader who loves plot and I love to read quickly. And I wanted this to be a memoir that you can read it a day that you didn't want to put down because the action kept you going. And I know because it's memoir, it has to have great interiority too. I wanted it to be a really visceral experience for the reader in terms of what was happening on a sensory level. And so I wanted to build that kind of tension. The prologue, like you said, it was a necessary component because otherwise a reader is just not going to care about what happens to two people that they've never met. And so I think what any memoirist thinks really carefully about is how am I going to give enough information to make you care about me and my life a little bit without just filling in this backstory. And so in all the various versions of this that I wrote, what I noticed is that I kept telling these little stories about us, but if they didn't connect to the origin of this book, you know, this book is not the whole life of Abby Maslin. This book is about a specific event and how it transformed me and my marriage. If it didn't connect to that thread, it needed to be cut out. So I think one of this kind of like one of the early mistakes I made was just trying to say all the things that had happened to us. And ultimately, those just things just had to go. It has to fit in with the story that you're trying to tell, not an entire biography on your whole life. It's, it's a very different genre in that sense. Yeah. And where you did that so brilliantly. So what happens is there are times where Abby goes back into the past and we see things about her and her husband in the past, but it never feels like the story is being slowed down or drawn backwards because what she reveals each instance in that backstory is something that's integral to the understanding of what is happening in the moment, in the hospital, in the whatever. So for example, when she speaks about her husband's tenacity, how hard he works, how driven he is, she then will go back to instances in the past that reinforce that. So we get to know that part of his personality so that we can understand her thinking in that moment in terms of our understanding of his character. There's also moments in which she speaks about how little time they had together as a married couple before having a child and before this happened. And that's when she mentions caring for her father over the period of four years prior to this and having her father living in her home while she took care of him. Now, you could have begun the novel with 
four years or however many years ago, I was taking care of my father and then we got pregnant faster than we thought we would. And you could have like done this emotional vomit of everything in your life so that we knew all of that before the present day stuff, but you guarded against that so perfectly. And each bit of backstory, each bit of thing that you revealed was so important to the understanding of that present day narrative. And when I say present day, I mean in the moment that you're taking us through from 2012. So was that trial and error? Was that like puzzle pieces? First version had too much backstory. Then the second version, you started moving puzzle pieces around. How were you able to figure out what needed to go when? Great question. I think that's it's a question of what's front and center and what is the camera looking at, right? And so there is this kind of subplot about my dad in the book because he became very, well, he was very sick before my husband was injured and then he passed away 18 months after my husband was injured. And there is a lot of writing that I felt like I wanted to do about my dad, who's such a dear person in my life. But that would have been a book about my dad. And that writing would have been for me to process his loss and, and, and what the experience of caregiving for him meant to me. And all of that's worthy, but it just, again, doesn't fit who's in focus for this story. And, and the two characters that are in focus here are me and my husband primarily. And so I think, again, if you just kind of zoom in on like who the spotlight is shining on, that really quickly eliminates the things that you don't need to tell. But it is trial and error too. It's it's writing it down for yourself so that you can cut it later and make peace with the fact that it might not end up in the final product. And I love what you've just said. For me, writing is a form of therapy. I write fiction and it's pure therapy for me. And many memoirists write their memoirs so that they can process these things that happened to them. But there is a difference between writing something just to process it and writing it as therapy and writing it as storytelling. And those two things need to 100% be separated. Did you have beta readers, people who were helping you along the way besides your agent, Abby, who was saying, this is too much that you've loaded up front. How about you move this bit around? Because I feel like even with me, when I write fiction, I lose all objectivity. I spend so much damn time in this imaginary world that I I cannot figure out where the hell things need to be moved. And when you're writing about your life, where the hell do you get any objectivity then? So how did you gain that objectivity? Who helped you with that? Oh my gosh. Well, mistakes made because I wish that I had let more people read it, but I was so private about it and I was so superstitious about it. I think the idea that my life had fallen apart so drastically and then I got this opportunity to write a book, I was like, is it even real? Is it happening? I don't want to share this with anybody who's going to rain on my parade. So I let my sister read it and that was it. I let TC read it as well a few versions of it. And he was very supportive, but I wish I had shared it. I am now writing fiction and I have found that I, I cannot go on without having a beta reader. And so I'm really fortunate to be part of a couple of trusted groups where I can send my writing now, but I was, I really just sent it to my agent. So another piece of advice would be just to like, let it go, get it out of your hands, trust others with it. I think you have to be receptive to criticism in a different way it is your life. And so it is very bizarre to write about your life and to be honest about it. And then to have people give you a Goodreads review, right? Because they might be thinking about the writing, but generally they're thinking about 
you and whether they empathize with what happened to you or not. And so you do have to learn how to separate the criticism of the writing and the structure of the writing and the craft of the writing from the story itself. And I, I think that takes practice. And so I would advise people to just choose beta readers who love the same books that you love, who will understand what your objective is so that you can reach for the tonality that you want and they'll be able to tell you kindly what doesn't belong to. And I think getting beta readers who are also writing memoir is super helpful because I know I've spoken to a few people who write into the podcast who say, I'm, I'm writing memoir. And then they say, but they don't want anyone to read it because it's super private. And you're like, well, but if you publish it, a whole bunch of strangers are going to read this. And, and like you say, they are going to comment on your life. It's not just the writing. I get upset when I get a one-star review on Amazon because the book arrived with the cover dented. And I'm like, don't judge a book by its cover. But like these people are rating your life, which means you have to start building up a bit of a thicker skin. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just, you also, before your book hits the shelves, you need to define for yourself what success sounds like and looks like, because I think any author, no matter what genre they write in, will tell you that the number of books you sell is one element of that. And the bigger element for me is the feedback that I've gotten. I have had this incredible experience of almost like, it feels like almost every single person who's read it has written to me personally after and thinks of me as a friend. And that has been the most rewarding experience out of all of this. It's just to become so deeply connected with, with so, so many people whose struggles have been different than mine in lots of ways, but who related to the experience of the loneliness and the distrust in the world that I, that I went through after this happened. For me, that's been a much more important hallmark than what happens on Goodreads. And I just have to be self-disciplined and not looking at that too much or factoring it in too much because readers who love your work will, will tell you that they love your work and they're wonderful for doing that. That just makes my day when that happens. Well, the good news is that you started with the most difficult thing you could possibly <laughs> write. I don't want to say I'll never do this or I'll never do that because I do tend to contradict myself. I think I said I'd never write fantasy and then I wrote fantasy, but I do think I'd never write memoir, but because it's just so damn hard. It is just so hard. So you got that out the way, Abby. So I feel like fiction is going to be a breeze for you. I got that out of the way for sure. And I'm not ready to do it again. You know, I thought after I published this, that I would have another memoir in me, and I don't right now. And I think that's also a really important lesson to learn is that you've got to not only just have the story, the story is essential, but you have got to have the storytelling voice. And that's how memoir sells. You can't do just one of those things or have just one of those ingredients. You have to have both. And so for me now, the, the task is really just enhancing the kind of storyteller I am and telling other honest things. But like you mentioned, being able to tell it through fiction, which it's a really nice relief for me. <laughs> I don't have to put my own life on center stage to do that. Yeah, I find I can be most honest in fiction. Yeah. It's amazing how honest you can be in fiction. Abby, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I know that all of the memoirists out there are, are going to find it really, really useful. We're going to put Love You Hard on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You can find it there. Support Abby, support an independent bookstore and the podcast in the process. We wish you much luck with your fiction, Abby, and hope to have you back when that gets published. Thank you so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, 
It just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. 
And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.